0: saying, "'It is now enough. Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than any of my fathers.' And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said, "'Arise, eat.' And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, and he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, "'Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you.' And he arose and ate and drank, and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave, and he lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great strong wind tore the mountains. And broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. After the wind an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire the sound of a low whisper." And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And Behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elijah, the son of Shaphath, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. The one who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal. And every mouth that has not kissed him. Thus, far, the reading of God's word, let's pray once again. Father, we know that you are a God over people who are often full of weakness and weariness. Help us to know something of your sustaining provision. Help us to know something of your kind word of grace towards us in Jesus Christ. Even this night, as we pray it all in his name. Amen. You may be seated. By any just measure, a man named Charles Spurgeon would rightly be considered one of the mightiest ministers in Christ's church who ever lived. He was a 19th century preacher in London, as I'm sure many of you are aware. You may not know, however, as best we can tell. He preached to over 10 million people in his lifetime. Uh, He was a man that had a peculiar intellect and ability. He was said to read six substantial books every single week. Usually by the end of the week, he could quote back sentences to you verbatim from those books and tell you on which page number those sentences came. He wrote so many books. He wrote so many articles, pamphlets, published so many sermons that over a hundred years after his death... He had more works in the English language, still in print, than any other author in human history. Charles Spurgeon was a man, by any normal measure, would be considered the mightiest of servants. And yet he was a man, intimately acquainted with spiritual, with mental and emotional darkness, He said in one sermon to his church, I have suffered many times from severe sickness and frightful mental depression, sinking almost to despair. Almost every year I've been laid aside for a season for flesh and blood cannot bear the strain. At least my flesh and blood cannot bear the strain. I tell you that because it's true, as we're going to see tonight, that some of the mightiest church members, some of the mightiest ministers, Throughout scripture and church history, our people, men and women, intimately acquainted with darkness, with difficulty. Because you know Jeremiah, the prophet, he had the pit. Paul the apostle had his thorn that God said he wouldn't take away. And here we have Elijah, one of the mightiest prophets that ever lived has a dark night of the soul. And so what we want to look at tonight simply is this theme of Elijah's fainting fit. And it's a text that provides all kinds of reasons for conviction and comfort. Uh, Some of you might need the conviction that comes in this text because you're tempted to be like Elijah a lot of times in your life. And all you tend to think is, woe is me. I'm the only one who feels this way. I am the only one who has ever dealt with this. I am the only one. That is taking a stand for truth. Or it could be the comfort that comes in this text. uh, When the Lord's messenger finds the Lord's servant on a journey, on a pilgrimage. As we just read. And he doesn't come with threatening words of warning. Get back to your post, Elijah. Or what does he simply say? Take and eat. I will provide for your journey. And how often do people in the midst of dark nights of the soul need to know that the Lord Jesus Christ comes with such gentleness and tenderness that I will provide for you on this earthly pilgrimage that belongs to life this side of heaven. Or it might just be the simple reminder, which is an encouraging reminder, that what God's people need most in the midst of their hardship, in the midst of their melancholy, is but that still small voice of the Lord's word of grace and promise to his people. And so we're going to see Elijah's fainting fits in a couple of different ways, but let's make sure we set it in context to understand the striking contrast that belongs to chapter 18 and chapter 19. If you weren't with us last week, we left off last week where Elijah had called down fire from heaven, Uh, the Lord had exposed the vanity of idols, Israel had seen the victory of God twice, they had shouted therefore uh, before the mountain of Mount Carmel and said, Yahweh is God. But... The promise of rain had not yet come, which the Lord had told Elijah was coming. So Elijah goes back up to the mountain. He prays that that promise would come to pass. Seven times he's praying. And eventually, the rain falls. Revival seems to be ready to come to the northern kingdom of Israel. And kids, you might remember the scene that we left off with where rain is falling Elijah says, Ahab, get in your chariot and outrace the storm, get back to your palace. And as he's racing with this horse-drawn chariot, what Ahab sees running in front of him, or who Ahab sees running in front of him, is Elijah the prophet for something like 18 miles all the way back to Jezreel. And we said this wasn't a picture so much of Elijah's boundless energy and endurance as much as it was a vivid illustration of the place of God's word. It was a restoration of a pattern That had disappeared in Israel, which is the Lord's word, goes before the Lord's servant. So as they're pulling into the palace there at Jezreel, you have to recognize that Elijah, I think this context before us in chapter 19 makes clear. In his mind, what is he ready to hear from the palace of Jezreel? But repentance, that brings revival to the land. They'd just seen this mighty, conquering act of God in the contest at Carmel. But well, what we're going to see is, instead of repentance, he faces first the queen's retribution, which leads to the prophet's retreat and will end with the Lord's revelation. So the queen's retribution. Notice again, verse 1. Ahab told his wife Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Now, student's but what you don't see or don't hear Ahab telling Jezebel is, look what God has done. For who was it that called down fire? Elijah, yes, but who was it that brought down the fire? But God. It was God's law that called for the execution of these false prophets. Here's everything that God has done. This visible manifestation of his fullness, of his glory, of his holiness, that should lead Ahab to lead the nation in repentance, but instead he's saying it's all Elijah's fault. And it's striking, isn't it? Even here from the outset of our text, the degree to which unbelievers suppress the truth in unrighteousness. If ever there was a generation, if ever there was a servant, a leader, that saw an act of God that ought to compel on the basis of evidence alone, Repentance, it's Ahab. But evidence alone is never sufficient to bring one into the kingdom. The sovereign spirit of God must strive with man and bring about faith. And so Jezebel decides, of course, not to repent, but to call down all the power of hell on Elijah's life. Notice verse 2, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. It's interesting how this pattern works itself out throughout Scripture, something that you see even here. Sometimes when the Lord's purposes advance and even the Lord's purposes win a great victory, it's almost immediately as though it faces strong, violent, hell empowered opposition. You know, think about how it works out in Jesus' life. He's, he's Miracles are going out, his preaching is going out, people are ready to make him king, people are ready to call on him as the Messiah, and it's just then that the religious leaders, the Jews, decide, ah, we need to kill this guy. The gospel's advancing through the apostles' preaching into the Gentile areas where it had never gone before. It's subduing nations to the Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's just then that this guy, kind of Judaizer Heresy begins to arrive, to distract the apostles, to slow down the growth of the church. And it's so often, as we're getting ready to see, that it's after God's victories that His people are most vulnerable. And maybe you know that even in your own life. After a genuine spiritual victory, the soul tends to be quite vulnerable because it leads from the retribution of Jezebel to the prophet's retreat. Look at verse 3. Then he was afraid. He arose, ran for his life. He came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. There's two things to notice about verse 3. The first of which is, uh, the word here for afraid, it probably is better translated, even as some older translations do, as, then he saw. Then he saw that he was in trouble. And so he ran away. And it should be altogether striking to you that Elijah, this prophet of faith and fire, is now fleeing. Why? Well, because if I think we're right to translate as he saw, he's living by sight and not by faith. And kids, he's doing a lot of running over a very short amount of time. Because at the end of chapter 18, he ran almost 18 miles back to Jezreel. The very next day, he runs where? All the way down south to the border there in the southern area of Judah to Beersheba. That's another about 100 miles that he's gone. And then in the next day, he's going to go a wilderness day's journey away from his servant. So something like maybe 140 to 150 miles, he's gone in a very short amount of time. He's worn out. He's stretched thin. He's surely exhausted. He finds himself under a broom tree. Notice verse 4. And he says, it is enough. Yeah, I grew up in a church, not far from here actually, uh, that had a man who was a very gifted pastor. He was a wonderful preacher. He was a fantastic leader from everything I could see as a young boy and eventually middle school and high schooler in that church. He was quite capable in leading a church to... Incredible sacrificial generosity, as it relates to world missions, he had led the church to be famously known in local associations and even its denomination for giving away so much of its budget to support the, the lord's work throughout the nations and As I eventually moved on and grew up, and the Lord called me in the ministry, I often heard stories of my old childhood pastor, and as he got older and, and I got older, the stories became increasingly. Uh, one's full of concern as uh, we heard that this darkness of depression was beginning to overtake his life. And at one time it even resulted in him getting off on a sabbatical and it seemed as though things were uh, much more under control. But it was something like 10 years ago that I got news as I was sitting in the office one day at a former church where I pastored that while he was on a retreat he had taken his own life. And that came only a year after the pastor of the church where I was serving at the time had, as best we can tell, likely taken his own life. As was only a few weeks ago that a man that serves at a church is a faithful elder at one of my best friends' church. This man, in the midst of darkness and despair, he, he took his own life. And maybe you know stories, personally, experientially, of how the grip of despair and despondency can cause someone to feel like Elijah. Because what does he say in verse 4? It's enough now. O oh Lord, take away my life. I want you to see, though, it's instructive that he doesn't take the matter into his own hands, does he? That in the midst of his despair and his, his grief, he takes it to the Lord. He says, Lord, I want you to do something. But notice why he wants the Lord to do it. Verse 4 ends, for I'm no better than my fathers. All the prophets in previous generations, Lord, they failed to bring about repentance and revival in Israel. And guess what? I've failed to bring about repentance and revival in Israel. Just take me now. And one thing that you do need to see even from his response here in verse 4 is the tendency, we might even say the temptation for God's people to be so captivated in looking for immediate fruit from their labors. That if we don't see immediate fruit from all the hard work we've done for the Lord, we might as well be done with it all anyway. How many of you parents know it doesn't work that way with parenting? That if if you wanted to correct your child, to see revival flourish in their heart, and there's maybe a good response, but then you see the next day, well, we've taken a few steps backward. But you would not want to say, Lord, just take me away from my child's life. In the same way, church leaders can strive, can labor in the church for years and years and years and feel like they're not getting anywhere, so we might as well quit. We might as well give up. The Lord tends to most often, doesn't he, bring about his change silently, surely, and slowly. And Elijah's observed, revival should have come, Lord. Lord. Clearly, there's this contest at Carmel. No revival in the last few days. Where's it gone? You might as well take me now. And I want you to notice how the Lord treats him immediately in verse 5. Look, he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, the Lord's angel. We see that signified in verse 7. The Lord's angel, on two successive days, come and cares for him. Come and sustains him. Come and feeds him. The Lord doesn't come to his servant in the midst of his grief with a swift rebuke and correction. But he comes with him to what he needs. His sustenance for the journey the Lord knows he's getting ready to embark on down to Horeb. Don't you see that at the end of verse 7? The second day, arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. I hope you notice those verbs, even arise and eat. And know how even the Lord's messenger, the true angel of the Lord Jesus Christ, so often comes to his people in the midst of their grief and despair. And what does he say? Take and eat. Take and drink. What you need most is me. For I can sustain you and where I'm sending you. Because I really think the Lord is sending Elijah. There you'll notice the end of verse 8, 40 days and 40 nights, to Horeb, the mount of God. The queen's retribution leads to the prophet's retreat. And now in the rest of the passage, we get the Lord's revelation. Because kids, I wonder if you know the other name for Mount Horeb. It's more famous, I'm sure, for many of you. It's Mount Sinai. Elijah is meant to go back to the same place that the Lord made this covenant with Israel, the covenant That Elijah is now going to complain about Israel having broken and forsaken in this interaction with the Lord there on Mount Sinai. And there's so much of Elijah's life, we don't have the time to get into all the connections tonight, that that mirrors Moses at various points, but certainly the one that I want to show you tonight is just as Moses conquered in this dramatic scene in the Lord's power, these pagan prophets and these pagan leaders, and then went to Mount Sinai. Here you have Elijah. With this great show of God's power. Conquering a pagan court full of pagan powers. And he's going to the very place where Israel made a covenant with God. In order as an appropriate prophet to bring forth charges against God's people. Saying what they have done. And the Lord's going to address him in a way that's comforting. But he's going to address him also in a way that's convicting. So you see what the Lord says, verse 9. The word of the Lord comes to Elijah, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? You know, it's one of those texts that you would love to have a a tone meter. Because think about how different it can sound if you place the accent on each word. What are you doing here, Elijah? 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 I don't know what it sounded like. But, but certainly it's an invitation for Elijah to unburden his heart. And I trust you know that by his word and spirit and according to a gracious Intercessor's name Jesus Christ, when God's people are full of despair and despondency and grief, that you can trust the Lord comes and says, What are you doing? What are you thinking here? Well, Elijah wants to complain, doesn't he? Verse 10. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left. They seek my life to take it away. It's clear enough. has broken their covenant obligations. Elijah complains about his isolation. I'm the only one left. Well, the Lord says, it's time for you to hear something. As you see verse 11, go out and stand on the mount of the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. There's another connection with Moses. There isn't there in Exodus 34 when Moses comes and wants to see God's glory and the Lord passes him by in the cleft of the rock. But you'll notice how the sequence goes. There's this, first of all, in verse 11, there's this great wind. And kids, you can picture this wind. I mean, what what kind of a wind must this have been? A hurricane-gale-like force that splits mountains apart and breaks boulders. But it says... The Lord's not there in the wind. What follows next? An earthquake. The shaking of the earth, Elijah feels. But God's not in that one either. Fire falls next. Not in that one either. Wind, earthquake, fire. It's exactly what shook Mount Sinai all the way back in the book of Exodus when God came to bring his covenant to his people. Where's God? Well, you'll notice... Verse 12, at the end and after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave, and the Lord gives the same question again. What are you doing here, Elijah? You know, much has been made about exactly what we should make about these various signs, these majesties, these manifestations of power there at Mount Horeb and what they exactly mean. I think probably the best way to understand it is, of course, there is this mirroring that belongs to Moses' life and it's a callback to realities in the book of Exodus. But, But surely it's reminding us that as people so often look for God and these manifestations that shake the earth, these manifestations that seem to split mountains apart, what does God most ordinarily do? He just speaks softly and tenderly a still small voice, he comes to Elijah and says, Elijah, what are you doing here? Well, verse 14, Elijah just repeats the exact same answer he already had given. And now in verse 15, through the end, uh, the Lord gives him that word of revelation and even that word of correction by the end. One of my mentors in ministry told me years ago that the Lord tends to break the hearts of his servants It's one of those sentences that will stick with you if you don't know its power. I mean, for how else will God's servants become competent in caring for broken hearts if the Lord doesn't break their heart? And what you have here, in, in every way, is Elijah. We're not meant to put him, I think, in these psychological therapeutic categories that so often dominate our culture today. You need to see here a man that's utterly broken in his service to God. And I want you to see here at the end two ways that the Lord means to minister to this broken servant because I think the ministry of God to this broken servant shows us the ordinary ways that God ministers truth and grace to brokenhearted people. So the first thing you need to see is that the broken heart needs to hear God's faithfulness. Needs to hear God's faithfulness. You see in verse 16 and Or 15 and 16, he says, Elijah, take these men and appoint them as kings. Take Elisha as the prophet. And verse 17 says, The one who escapes the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. He's faithful to his promise to punish those who continue in unrepentance and rebellion. It's a scary thing that should strike perhaps some of you in here tonight. There might be times in which evil seems to be winning. There might be times in which unrepentance seems to be gaining, but in the grand scheme of things. The sword of the Lord falls on those who don't repent. He's faithful to his promise of punishment. But he's also faithful to his promise of protection. You see the final part of our text, verse 18. Yet I will leave. It could also be, yet I have left 7,000 in Israel. All that the knees all the knees that have not bailed, bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. So often in these times of being broken hearted, you feel like you're the only one that feels this way, that has experienced this, that has gone through the struggle. You're the only one left. And what does the Lord do to Elijah? Elijah, hold on a second. I am faithful to my people. I'm building my church. The gates of hell and even the gates of Jezebel don't stand against me. Get up. Get going. Get back to business. The broken heart needs to hear the Lord's word of faithfulness. The second thing you need to see is that the broken heart needs to see Christ's fullness. Because if you go back to verse 4, what does he say? I'm no better than any of my father's. Moses had prophesied long ago that there was a prophet coming who was the true and greater prophet. Elijah's saying, That's not me. One is coming whom Elijah will see. And it's interesting, isn't it, what he does when that low whisper comes to him? Look at verse 13. Once again, when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak. He was too scared to see what might belong to that voice. But do you know that Elijah eventually saw the glory of God that he so desperately needed to see in the midst of his brokenheartedness? It's at the Mount of Transfiguration, there Moses and Elijah come. And what do they see? Exposed before them in all the resplendent glory that he is. The transfigured majesty of Jesus Christ. as what Elijah, this brokenhearted servant, needed to hear most God is faithful to his promise, get going. But the broken-hearted servant today needs to see most as the fullness of God's glory revealed in Jesus Christ. For in his sustaining kindness and grace, you can get going. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that your mercy, your grace has been made known in Christ Jesus. He is the fullness of your glory, the exact imprint of, of your radiant nature. Help us to hear, help us to see what we must. We thank you that we have a Savior that doesn't break bruised reeds, but even broken hearts. He knows how to heal. He knows how to strengthen. He knows how to send forth once again for his purposes. And we pray you do those very things according to Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.